1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-12, to 12, hear the word of the Lord. As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. It seems like most or probably all human beings are given to comparing things that are not the same, but they have something in common, and by comparing them, uh, these things to each other, we learn something about one or both of those things. We call these metaphors. When we uh, refer to something as something else, we use metaphors all the time. We use, use them so much actually, that we don't even think about them as being metaphors anymore, like the legs of a table uh, or the key to knowledge. These are metaphors, but we use them so commonly. Or uh, we talk about somebody being glued to her seat or somebody who is stone-faced or gave me a frozen stare. Or we might say that Congress applied a Band-Aid solution uh, to whatever it might be. Or we say, my cell phone is a dinosaur. Uh, or we say, he's a bull in a china shop. Uh, or I have butterflies in my stomach. And we could go, we could go on and on. These are all metaphors. Uh, none of us take these literally, but we learn something from them, don't we? It's much more descriptive to say he's a bull in a china shop than to say he's not very careful. Uh, or to say, I have butterflies in my stomach. That's very descriptive and nor- and rather than just saying, I was nervous. Uh, And we use these all the time without even thinking about them. Then there is something that humans do, and that's called the mixed metaphor. That's when we change horses in the middle of the stream. I just used another metaphor, didn't I? Right? Uh, We're going with one metaphor, and then we change to another metaphor, and sometimes very comical results come from our mixing of metaphors. For example, I found a few. I won't say to whom uh, these should be attributed, um, but one person said, Sir, I smell a rat. I see him forming in the air and darkening the sky, but I'll nip him in the bud. (laughs) Okay, the rat is now in the sky, and now we're going to nip it in the bud. I think that's at least three different metaphors. Or, I knew enough to realize that the alligators were in the swamp, and that it was time to circle the wagons. (laughs) Um, Okay, or, here's a good one, 
Out of the hat on Monday night, the Home Secretary produced the rabbit, the temporary provisions bill, as her fig leaf to cover her major U-turn. I think that's three of them right there. Okay, mixed metaphors. They're humorous. We fall into these. And we might at first think, as we read through this section of Peter, that he was falling into mixed metaphors because he shifts very quickly from one to the other. And I have to say, I don't think they're mixed metaphors. I think he just piles them up. Uh, And he piles them up in order to describe with poetic, metaphorical language who Christ is And then in light of who Christ is, who we are as God's people. And that's what we've been doing throughout this letter of 1 Peter. We've been discovering who God's people are. So far we have seen that we are an exiled people. We have seen that we are a hopeful people. We have seen that we are a holy people. And now there's so many metaphors, it's hard to know how to sum up this section. But I think we could do so by saying we are a chosen people. But I want you to see another thing that Peter does, in addition to piling up metaphors, he piles up Old Testament Scripture texts. And we've seen how he loves to do this. There is the debate about whether he's writing to Jews or writing to Gentile Christians, uh, but it doesn't really matter, we've seen, because he applies all the glories of the Old Testament to New Testament believers. And here he uh, quotes six different New Test- or Old Testament texts. He quotes from Psalm 118, Exodus 19, Isaiah 8, Isaiah 28, Isaiah 43, and then Hosea chapter 2. All of these in this one little section. And what he does is he begins by describing Christ, and then in light of who Christ is, he describes Christians. So first with Christ, and he begins with the the mega uh, metaphor of this section, and that is that Christ is a stone in verse 4. As you come to Him, a living stone. And even that should be arresting, because what are stones not? Stones are not living. Maybe at some molecular level they might be, I don't know. But stones are... are, No, no, not at all. Okay, the scientists are saying no. Stones are, are dead. Stones are inert. Stones are not living. And so we have already a strange description of a stone, that Christ is a living stone. But stones don't live. But you see, that's the point. Dead people don't live either. And so right off the bat here, another metaphor, uh, he's using a, a strange combination to point us to Christ, who was dead. And, and dead people don't live, but Christ lives because He has been raised from the dead. So the living stone points us both to His death and to His resurrection. And it describes this living stone as rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And I want you to see all through this letter what Peter is doing. He describes Christ, and he describes Him in such a way that it would resonate with the original readers, and it should resonate with us as well. If you go back to how he described the readers of the letter, in the very first verse, he says, "...to those who are elect exiles." elect exiles, and then he describes Christ as one who is rejected by men, but chosen by God. So he's describing Christ in the same way that he described the Christians. He said, Christ was rejected by men, but he was chosen by God. And you all, and they were exiles, he's saying, you're rejected by men, rejected by women, but you are chosen 
by God, even as Christ was. So the experience of the readers, the experience of Christians, is the experience that Christ himself had. Now, to back up this description of Christ as the stone, Peter quoted three Old Testament verses, including Psalm 118, verse 22, uh, where he talks about the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The cornerstone. If you have seen old buildings, and they don't even have to be that old, but you notice oftentimes that there is a stone that's at the very corner, and it has the date that that was laid. The laying of the cornerstone is when is when the the, the building is 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 considered to be uh, begun to be built. And the idea of the cornerstone architecturally is that the rest of the building rests upon that cornerstone. It is, is part of the foundation and is part of the wall and the building rests upon it. So by calling Christ not only a stone, a living stone, dead but now resurrected, he calls him the cornerstone and says everything else rests upon him. But this cornerstone is a cornerstone that was rejected. And Christ mentioned this when he was talking to the religious leaders in Mark and Matthew and Luke. He was telling them a parable, and then he concluded by saying, haven't you ever read? And he quoted this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then Peter, the same Peter who wrote this when he was preaching to those religious leaders uh, after Christ's death and resurrection and ascension into heaven, he he got personal, he quoted this and he said, the stone which you builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and it's a matter of, of public record, of historical record, that Jesus was in fact rejected unto death by the religious leaders of his day. But Peter, Peter extends that and says, it wasn't just the religious leaders of the day who rejected him as the cornerstone. Even today, many reject him as the cornerstone. But here, once again, people reject the cornerstone, but for God, this is the cornerstone, the precious cornerstone on which everything rests. And that's why this cornerstone becomes a dividing line for humanity. He talks about um, that there are two responses to this cornerstone. There is the response of faith to this cornerstone, belief in Christ. And then there is the response of unbelief. Uh, it says that in verse 6, it is laid, uh, stands in Scripture, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. And then verse 7, So the honor is for you who believe. So, for those who respond to Christ, the cornerstone, the living stone, in faith, in faith in Christ as the one who was dead, who has come alive again, uh, what do we have? It says that we will not be put to shame, even if people put us to shame. Uh, and we will have honor, even if people dishonor us. So, not be put to shame, but rather honor. But then, at the end of verse 7, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and, and this is the other side of it, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And this is the other side of it. This is the the dividing line. This cornerstone, for some, is the the foundation of the whole structure. For other, it's a rock that gets in the path and they stumble over it and they disobey it and they disbelieve it. Although in our part of the world, we're not facing, at this point in history, 
overt opposition, persecution, severe persecution of Christians, uh, as the original readers might have been. They were facing at least opposition. Maybe it rose to the level of persecution. They were facing ostracism, and, and they were being separated out and, and criticized at least, and maybe it was more severe than that, but all around the world throughout Christian history, and even today many Christians face what is truly persecution and rejection and sometimes even martyrdom. But they lived in a society uh, in which the Christian message was highly offensive. And we live in a society, at least in this, this regard, in which the Christian message is also highly offensive. Their, their situation was this. They were in a, a situation with many gods, polytheistic many gods, and this system that they had of many gods was perfectly willing to allow for other local, private, little gods. And so if the Christians had simply been willing to have their God, uh, Jesus, and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but uh, worshiping through the name of Christ, and the, they wouldn't have been ostracized and persecuted so, so severely. They, they would have just been seen as a, a sect of Judaism that could be safely ignored. But you see, that's not what the Christians did. That's not how they treated this message that they had received. And that's our situation as well, isn't it? We live in, we don't call about, call it polytheistic anymore, even though it is. We call it pluralistic, where all sorts of ideas and beliefs are tolerated, and we can give thanks that in our society that our beliefs are tolerated and other beliefs are tolerated. That's, that's a free society, and there are many benefits to that. But when we go so far as to say Christ is the cornerstone, and you need to believe in Him or disbelieve. And this question of whether you believe in Him or disbelieve in Him, that is the dividing line of all eternity. Now things get to be difficult. Now we are accused of being intolerant or arrogant or whatever it might be. And, and certainly this message did run against the, the flow of the, the polytheistic culture of the day and runs against the flow of ours. And so it would be easy simply to retreat and say, well, this is right for us. And people are simply willing to grant that all the time. And they'll say, this is, this is right for you. So this is your private belief system. This is your private deity. But the problem with that is that we're not given that option. And it's not something that we've made up. If we are Christians, we receive the words of Christ. And He's the one, He's the one who said, Audacious things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So we're not making this up. We're not trying to impose our views on others. We are believing and relating to our society what Christ has communicated to us. And I think what we need to emphasize is this. What we're saying is not simply, here's another recipe for you to find God. Here's another recipe for you to find God. Because if it's looked at that way, I can understand the criticism of arrogance. Who do you think you are to say that your recipe, among all these recipes, is the only right recipe in order to find God? But that's not what we're saying. We're not saying that this is a recipe for you to find God. We're saying the one true God has come to find us that He has come to be one of us. 
And if that's the message, then it is a unique message. It is not simply one formula among many. It is the only message that goes in the opposite direction. And that's why it's unique, and that's why it's offensive. But I, I want us to understand that it's not simply saying, well, our view is the better view, our, our system is the better system for climbing to God. No. Our message is the message that we receive that God has come down to us and become one of us and given Himself for us so that we might be taken out of darkness and live in the light. Now, all of this leads up to, speaking of what Christ is, the cornerstone, the stone, the living stone, leads up to uh, His description of those who believe in Him. And here He piles on a number of metaphors. So, another metaphor, buckle your seatbelts because we're going to see a number of metaphors here. In verse 5, he says, You yourselves, going back to verse 4, as you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So the first metaphor that he applies to us, he says, not only is Christ the living stone, But we are living stones, and here, no longer the cornerstone, because there's only one cornerstone, but rather a number of living stones. And here, the image is from the Old Testament temple, where the dwelling place of God was a physical structure with beautiful stones. He's saying no longer those dead, inert stones of the Old Testament, rather God is building His dwelling place now with people alive from the dead, living stones. And then, immediately, He changes the metaphor. And he says, he says, first of all, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And I think what he's doing here, he's playing on a little bit of ambiguity in the word house. What is a house? Well, sometimes we think about house as a physical structure, right? But also, if I talk about my house consists of Sandy and my daughters, and my son-in-law, and my parents. What am I saying? I'm saying my house is my family. And I think that's what he's doing. He's playing a little bit on the, the ambiguity of the word house. So first of all, he uses the idea of a physical structure. We are stones fit into that physical structure. But we're more than just part of the structure. We actually are the family that lives in that house. And we are a family, he says, of priests. It's a spiritual house. You might want to capitalize the S there. A spiritual house that is of the Holy Spirit to be a holy priesthood to offer probably again, capital S, Holy Spirit sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, physical temple. In the Old Testament, a family of priests. They had to be from a certain tribe, from the tribe of Levi, descended from Aaron. They, they had to be of the, 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 that certain family. But now he says that all of God's people are a holy priesthood. Now, what do priests do? What's the job of priests? What a priest does is offer sacrifices. And so if we're a holy priesthood, we need to have something to offer. And he doesn't tell us what those sacrifices are here. He just says that they are spiritual sacrifices, that these sacrifices are acceptable to God. God is pleased with these sacrifices, and He's pleased with them because of Jesus Christ. But what are they? Well, in order to know what some of them are, and this may not be an exhaustive list, we need to look at other places in the New Testament. 
And I'm going to give you the list. This is a a whole study in and of itself, or maybe several studies. I'm just going to give you uh, some other ones that are mentioned in the New Testament that are more specific. For example, uh, Romans 12.1 says that we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. So that's the first thing. We offer ourselves, our bodies, to God. And then at the end of Romans, Romans 15, he says another sacrifice are the nations that we bring to God by preaching the gospel. And so we, we are presenting the nations to God as a sacrifice. And then another, speaking of bringing the nations, our money that we give for missions. In uh, Philippians 4.18, he speaks to the Philippians and commends them and says, thank you for giving money so that we can take the gospel to other people. And uh, that helped us in our mission, but even more than that, it is a an acceptable sacrifice to God. And then, another one, and these come together in Hebrews 13, 15, and 16. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews describes our praise, what we have done today corporately, and what we do throughout the week privately. Our praise, the fruit of lips that praise His name, that's an acceptable sacrifice to God. And then, the next verse, thirteen sixteen of Hebrews, helping each other. When we help each other, that also is a a spiritual sacrifice to God. Not only does it help the other person, but it glorifies God as a sacrifice to Him. And now, we go to verse 9. In addition to being the building, in addition to being the priesthood, he piles on some other images. And I want you to see that all of these images are from the Old Testament. And all of these images are applying to us, as New Testament believers, what God had intended for the people of Israel in the Old Testament. He says from Isaiah 43.20 that we are a chosen race. We are a chosen race. But we're not all from the same physical race. So this is even more glorious. So we're a chosen race, but from all the races put together and we're now unified in a chosen race. We're a holy nation, but now it's not only one political nation, but a nation from all the nations. And then, again, Isaiah 43. I might have... Yes, that's Isaiah 43 as well. He calls us a people for God's own possession. And then, switching to Hosea chapter 2, which we read earlier in the service, he says that we are now a people, and we were once a not-people. So we were a not people, and now we're a people. Now think about that. If it weren't for the Christian church, if it weren't for our faith in Christ, we wouldn't be together. We wouldn't know each other. Uh, We wouldn't be crossing lines of ethnicity. We wouldn't be crossing uh, socioeconomic lines. We wouldn't be crossing language barriers. We wouldn't do that because we weren't a people. We were various people scattered around in our own tribes. But now he says... What God has done is taken a no people, a not people, and He has made us into a people. And then He says, one more thing, that we are now a mercied, if I could use that word, make that word up, we are a mercied people when we used to be a no mercied people. We had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy, which are two images from Hosea, where God said to His people, I'm... I'm rejecting you, you're no longer my people, I'm no longer going to show you mercy. And later he says, well, yes, I actually am going to after all. 
you who are not a people, I'm going to show you mercy. Or, you are my people. You who did not receive mercy, now I'm going to show you mercy again. And I want to I want to focus a little bit on that last one, the receiving mercy. This is very important because when we talk about uh, being a chosen people, how that sounds on the outside, it sounds very arrogant. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are calling yourselves the chosen people of God? But you see, that to most people sounds like a boast when it is exactly the opposite of a boast. Because if God has chosen us according to His mercy, it's not a boast for us. It's a a source of thanksgiving. It's not a source of pride. Now, Now think about it. If we wanted to boast, a boast would sound like this. I chose God. He is my chosen God. Now, that would be a boast. That would be a boast to say, I did God the favor of choosing Him. I showed Him my mercy by selecting Him to be my God of all the other options. But you see, it's not a boast if we say, yes, we were chosen, but it had nothing to do with us. It had everything to do with His mercy. Jeremy Green and his wife had three children three biological children, and then they discovered to their dismay that they weren't able to have more children, but they wanted to have a larger family. And so they did what a number of families do. They looked into adoption. And as they looked into adoption, they first had in their minds, like many families do, healthy infant. And so they went to the adoption agencies and they began looking at different options. And it's, as you know, a long and difficult process. And they were looking for healthy infant which is every, what every parent hopes to bear and, and through adoption, what most parents would be looking for quite naturally. But then they noticed that there was a list. There was a list of children that nobody wanted. And on that list were, were older children. They weren't infants. Uh, there were children who had very serious special needs. And so Jeremy and his wife decided that they would adopt two on the same day. And the first two children they got, one was not able to see, and the other was born without arms. And these two uh, stick together because the one who can't see grabs the the, uh, armless sleeve of her sister and uh, she leads her around, but, uh, but she can't reach for anything. And so the one who can't see functions as the arms for the one who has no arms. And then they kept going and they ended up adopting six in all. Another one was not able to see. Another one was born with spina bifida and was in a wheelchair. Another one was born with severe autism. Now, what's the point of all this? Um, Why were they chosen? Because they were the healthiest? Because they were the most beautiful? Because they were the ones that could uh, most make the family proud of having special, beautiful, successful children? No. They were chosen because the parents decided to set their love on these children. Because the parents decided to have mercy on children who had not gotten a chance in life up to that point. And children that nobody else wanted. That's how we should look at God's election of His people. He didn't choose us because we were the best and the brightest. In fact, Paul makes it very clear. He chose us because we were the least likely. 
And so there is no boasting here to say that we are the chosen people of God. On the contrary, look at the reaction in verse 9. It says, You're a chosen race, a whole royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. What is the response? If we have been chosen according to our own virtues, then the response would be for us to boast and talk about how wonderful we are. But if we are chosen according to God's grace and according to God's mercy, then the response is to declare the praises, the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And here, Peter is invoking another Old Testament image. Do you recall in the creation story, where everything was dark and chaotic, and then God began to to make order out of chaos, but it was still dark. And then what did He say? Let there be light. And so here, Peter is saying that that our calling is as momentous as, as God's calling the universe out of darkness into light. Our calling is as a new creation. And many of us remember that darkness in which we used to walk. And we remember when the, when the light switch was, was turned on and when God called us out of darkness and we saw for the first time. And the response to all of that, to His mercy, to being called out of darkness, is simply that we declare the excellencies of Him who called us. That's the response of those who were not a people, but who are now a people who were not mercied and who now are mercied. That's the response that we would praise our God. And then, verses 11 and 12, I wasn't sure whether to include these or not in this section. This version of the Bible includes them, but I think it's probably, this section is probably an introduction to the body of the letter. Because here he gets back to how we should live. If we are an exiled people, if we are a hopeful people, if we are a holy people, if we are chosen people, and the body of the letter is how then should we live But at the same time, I think the translators did well in this version by including it as also a conclusion because not only should we praise God for calling us out of darkness into light, but he says we should live such excellent lives wherever we might be that others would see our lives and praise God as well. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is typical of Peter. It's typical of Paul. Typical of the New Testament. Put off these things and put on other things. Put off those passions, those self-destructive passions that he calls the futile ways that we receive from our forebears. Put those off because you are all the people, the holy people, the royal priesthood, the holy nation. Put those off. And what should we put on? Conduct among the Gentiles, among the nations, so that even if they are against us, even if they are looking for a way to slander us, They can find nothing in our lives that is worthy of slander. But rather, they are compelled by what they see in us to glorify God. So here, Peter ends with something very, very practical. Two things, actually. What should be, if this is who Christ is, the living stone, the cornerstone, if this is who we are, all these metaphors that he's described us as the chosen people of God, two things should happen. 
if we grasp this, if we understand, if we appreciate who we are in Christ, then one thing is that we should praise God. We should praise God here. We should praise God throughout our lives because He called us out of darkness into light. That's one test of whether, whether this is sunk down into our souls. And the other is that others should praise God because of us. We should praise God because He has made us His people. And also others should praise God because He has made us His people. And as they see His work in our lives, their response is to declare the excellencies of that One who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Let's pray. Our God, we do pray that that we would live lives full of praise to You and that our lives would be so excellent that others would praise You as well. We pray that we would be able to bring the various sacrifices to You as a holy royal priesthood, knowing that they are acceptable not because of us, but because of Christ, the stone that was rejected, which has become the cornerstone, on which You are building Your people and on which we build our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.